0: oh,
1: we didn't get that in. (laughs) I know, I, I took that out.
0: Welcome to Books of Titans. I'm Jason Staples, together with Eric Rostad, and this podcast is dedicated to the influences of influencers, the books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectual scientists, and all sorts of others. We'll talk about what makes these books so important and influential, and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about these important works.
1: Today we're going to cover the book Vagabonding by Rolf Potts, An Uncommon Guide to the Art of Long-Term World travel. And we'll go ahead and get started with who recommended this book within Tools of Titans. And it is recommended by none, none other than the author himself, Tim Ferriss. You can find him at T Ferris or tim.blog.
0: Two R's, uh, two S's, as he always says.
1: Yes, yes. And I, <laughs> I, uh, I often forget that uh, second S in there. So it's a good, good reminder. Uh, this is one of Tim's two books that he constantly recommends. If you've ever listened to his podcast and he does an audible.com advertisement, it's this book in the Graveyard Book that he that he always recommends, and he credits Vagabonding with leading to much of the content that you find in the four-hour workweek. And he, he devoted a whole section of Tools of Titans to this book and to roll pots in a section that's called How to Earn Your Freedom. Uh, it can be found in the middle of, of the Tools of Titans book if you have the uh, physical copy in pages 362 to 368. Now, the author of this book is Rolf Potts. You can find him at Rolf Potts, R-O-L-F-P-O-T-T-S, on Twitter or at his website, which is also RolfPotts.com. His uh, one claim to fame is he once traveled around the world for six weeks with no luggage or bags of any kind. He blogged about this experience at RTWblog.com. So that's an interesting site to check out if if you want to see how to limit your uh, your luggage and, and what you carry on on your trips. Going into the next section, uh, we'll start with my favorite quote and then we'll go into Jason's favorite quotes as, uh, Jason always likes to do more than, more than one. <laughs> so uh, my, my favorite quote was, uh, people travel to faraway places to watch in fascination, the kind of people they ignore at home. And I just thought this was a, a funny quote because, because it is true. You'll, uh, you'll go somewhere and, and, uh, see people doing something, but there's, there's probably a whole section of, uh, of people in your city from that country and you would never give them a, a second look in in your own hometown so just thought that thought that was kind of a, a funny funny uh uh intuitive quote
0: Now my favorite quote and I actually really do have just one here although I'm going to I am going to fudge it as usual and 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 talk about one other one as well uh a little bit later uh, but my my favorite quote from the book is vagabonding is not about merely reallocating a portion of your life for travel, but rediscovering the entire concept of time. And to me, that was the most valuable thing from this book overall. Uh, you know, I think that there was uh, a good bit of value in this book, and but the, the primary thing was less actually about the travel. It was more about a reminder of what's really valuable in life. What's really valuable in terms of thinking about time and thinking about money and, and and just proper prioritizing and that that quote I think sums all of that up but there are there are a number of decent quotes in here many of which are from other authors but uh, but I think again getting back to that rediscovering the entire concept of time thing uh, is a big theme in this book and it's it's what I found most valuable overall
1: well and seems to be a theme in, in the other books we're reading as well and I remember uh, the old man in the Sea that that the issue of time also had a big impression on you, as well. Uh, so I, I, I like I like that part of what we're doing. Uh, that that there are 52 books and there there's millions of books out there, but we're we're concentrating on 52 of them this year. And and just to notice uh, similar thoughts, similar ideas in, in these books is a is a really fun part of of what we're doing. So uh, it's neat that that quote stuck out to you, especially after it was such a big uh, had such an Big impression on you from the the old man in the sea.
0: Yeah, I suppose some of it's just a, a matter of my own uh, phase of life as well, sort of where I'm where I'm at and trying to uh, figure out uh, the the rest of sort of at the beginning of a, having just finished a, a PhD uh, at the beginning of uh, reconsidering where where, where I'm going to go with the rest of life. Uh, you know that, that's uh, that's very poignant to me at this at this moment.
1: Yeah, and and one of the. The biggest things I've I've noticed so far in in these books is that there is a time and a place for for books. Um, there there's the right time in in someone's life for a book, and and sometimes that could be right now. Uh, but this is one of those books that really seemed to be the right time for for Tim Ferriss. He uh, he just absolutely loved it. So we'll we'll talk about that a little later on. But uh, to to go into the overview and initial reactions reaction section, first off. Uh, Tim Ferriss, in, in the new version of this book, Tim Ferriss does the foreword, and I, I caught one thing in there, in the foreword, that I thought was was really interesting, and that's that Tim Ferriss tells us he reads one to three books a week, or fifty to one hundred and fifty per year on on average, and we're we're doing fifty two books for for this project, but uh, that's that's at the low end of of what uh, Tim Ferriss is doing, and so I I just thought that was neat, and and um, especially when you when you see the books that have been suggested by, uh, by the people he interviews, uh, these are some, some really good books. And, uh, so it's neat to see that he's reading a lot. And, and I think he's reading a lot of the books that are, are suggested to him as well.
0: One of the things I find interesting about that actually is that, uh, and I can't remember where this is actually, but he mentions, uh, reading less as, uh, as important that, you know, you don't need to read uh, so often read, read fewer books and all this, uh, at, at, at one other time. So again, it gets back to your idea of, uh, so much in life being seasonal and so much about, uh, about have about finding the right book or the right, you know, influence the right thing at the right time. Uh, and, and I think that's the, uh, uh, that's, that's perhaps the lesson to, uh, to, to gather from that as well.
1: Yeah. One of the other initial reactions I had was just though the, the, tone of the book in terms of the romance of travel. And uh, he's got one quote where he, he says, a trip takes us. And I think back to some of the travel I've done. And my first overseas trip was to Mexico. It was on a church mission trip. And I know um, <laughs> those can be <laughs> strange and, and, uh, There's a lot of thoughts about what those entail. You mean a but, vacation for yeah vacation slash uh, yeah. mission? But um, there, there are things that stuck out to me. And and really sparked my interest in travel. And, and I really credit those, um, those first trips to Mexico as, as being, uh, leading to the path that I ended up taking in life in terms of, uh, studying international business and, and, uh, doing different travel throughout my life. And it was mostly from, from meeting people on that trip and really getting a glimpse of, even though I'm in Mexico, getting a glimpse of the United States from outside of the United States, it it, it actually opened up in, in the ability to see the culture that you're in by being in a in a different culture. So I, I really uh, connected with that that romance of of travel that he he would keep talking about in, in that quote that a trip takes us. I, I really enjoyed that.
0: Yeah. And actually, you know, one of the things that was interesting about that for me is I, I actually thought the other. So I mentioned in my favorite quotes that, you know, that rediscovering the entire concept of time is really a, what he's getting at with vagabonding. The other piece that I think is um, it, it, that that ties to that, that idea of a trip takes us and and the idea of all the things that you get to see by getting pulled out of your normal reality. And suddenly, you know, you're you're paying attention to uh to things that you would have just passed by at home, as you mentioned in your favorite quote, the uh, people watch in fascination, the kind of people they ignore at home, it gets back to, I think, really the book's thesis in a lot of respects is uh, that this is in the Keep It Real chapter where he says, vagabonding is, at its best, a rediscovery of reality itself. Uh, and in in that sense, I think the one of the important things to remember as we as you read this book and as we discuss the book is uh is this idea that vagabonding as as he puts it forward is more of a philosophy more of a way of going through life than it is actually the travel itself that's the interesting thing is you know you could you can come you can have a, a an encounter with with differentness with, you know, something that's outside the realm of your everyday grind by going to Mexico or just by stepping out of your everyday grind in your, in, you know, at home, uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in the place that you live. And, and I think that to some degree, as I, as I read the book, I, I kept thinking that so much of what Potts is saying in this book is more about mindfulness than it is travel itself. Now travel is a means to an end uh in this respect but not the end itself that there that that really this is about priorities this book is about priorities it's about uh rethinking life in general what really matters uh where you where a person you know what do you really value these sorts of things and reshuffling the way that that you're living to actually uh work out with what you find, what what you act, at least claim is most valuable. And basically, Potts is saying, put your money and your time where your mouth is. If you say that, you know, you want to do this and that, then do this and that. If you say that, you know, this is what, what really matters in terms of life, then don't spend your entire life doing other things in order to, you know, ostensibly do those things at some later date. Actually make room in your life to, to, to do something else. Um, yeah. And and I think that's really what he's getting at in this book, and again, the the beauty of that is, or the beauty of travel, as he talks about, is precisely that. And 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 in that sense, I'm kind of reminded of um, C.S. Lewis's discussion in A Grief Observed, where he talks about how um, as he was grieving his wife, uh, he would he would have people would come together and say, "Oh, she will live forever in your memory," you know, these sorts of things, and he would say live this is uh this is from a grief observed that is exactly what she won't do you might as well think like the old egyptians that you can keep the dead by embalming them will nothing persuade us that they're gone what's left what's left a corpse a memory and some versions a ghost all mockeries and or horrors three more ways of spelling the word dead it was h i loved his wife uh, joy actually uh as if I wanted to fall in love with my memory of her, an image in my own mind. It would be a sort of incest. And, and pr- right prior to that uh, passage, he had talked about how, uh, how it's, it's a strange thing that uh, he said the, the most precious gift that marriage gave me was this constant impact of something very close and intimate, yet all the time unmistakably other, resistant In a word, real. And this notion of resistance is is really important. He goes on to say, Today I met a man I hadn't seen for 10 years, and all that time I had thought I was remembering him well, how he looked and spoke and the the sort of things he said. The first five minutes of the real man shattered the image completely. Not that he had changed. On the contrary, I kept on thinking, yes, of course, of course, I'd forgotten that he thought that, or disliked this, or knew so-and-so, or jerked his head back that way. I'd known all these things once and I recognized them the moment I met them again, but they had all faded out of my mental picture of him. And when they were all replaced by his actual presence, the total effect was quite astonishingly different from the image that I'd carried with me, carried about with me for those 10 years. And he basically says 10 minutes or 10 seconds of a real person corrects the images in our mind. And I think to some degree, that's what pots is getting at here which by the way i think uh this is a big theme i've got a, a blog post from years ago uh from when i did a uh uh these were notes from when i did a review article on the movie inception for a, for a, an academic journal i had some spillover notes from that that uh, i ended up blogging on i actually think the movie inception the the subplot between Cobb and his uh and his dead wife Mall. Uh, in that are based on this same kind of thing, and actually, I think uh, Chris Nolan probably borrowed from a grief observed for some of the dialogue there uh, and for for some of that concept but um but I think that 's what Potts is getting at here with how travel takes you with how exposure to something real to something that 's outside the the sort of day that you can just go about. Go about go through the motions in your everyday life. You just get up and you go to the computer and you check your email and you, you know, you drive to work. And if somebody asked you what happened on your drive to work, you don't really remember. You're on overtime. You were on, overt- uh, you were on uh, autopilot the whole time. It's that kind of unreal autopilot existence. That going to a new place, like you mentioned in your first Mexico trip, or what uh, Potts is talking about in the cons- in, in the uh, confines of vagabonding. It's that it's stepping outside of that autopilot to actually be present, to be around the uh, around uh, something that's resistant, that's real, that is other, that's outside of that autopilot existence. That that this is really getting at. I think that's kind of the that's the larger takeaway here, and that can be done at home. It just takes again leaving. That home autopilot setting intentionally, mindfully, and, and doing something else and, and and exposing yourself to something other than the usual, well, I get home from work and I watch this sitcom and I eat my dinner and I go and I do this and, and so on so I think that's that's really where this book is, is headed. I, I found that really, really interesting
1: yeah, and that's the, that's the thing that challenged me the most in the book as well in in the back of the book I wrote when I travel, my senses are opened up why can't? Why can't I have that same level of openness here in everyday life and that's something that really really challenged me from the from the book of of you know when I travel i it's everything's open i'm I'm open to meeting people talking to people uh, but at home i'm I'm closed i I just kind of go through the motions and the the question was was brought up to me why why do I do that to good question and a a, a good, uh, good result from the, from the book.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, again, one of the notes that I have on here is learn to step back and appreciate to look and listen, be present. And that's a good reminder for us, you know, in everyday life, it doesn't, it doesn't require travel to the other side of the world to do that. You can travel out to your garden or you can travel, you know, you can knock on your next door neighbor's door I mean, I, I don't generally know the names of my of people that live in my neighborhood, but knocking on your next door neighbor's door, or just sitting down and talking with someone uh, in that context is the sort of thing that stimulates that uh, or mm-hmm. reading a different book. So, you know, I think that's uh, a that, that's a worthwhile thing from the book.
1: Yeah. And uh, for for our listeners who have not read the book, uh, as part of this overview, we wanted to, to describe the book as well in that it is a philosophy book on philosophy of travel philosophy of, of mindfulness but it's also a, a tool guide uh, at the end of each chapter there's websites with further information and with with other references so it's it's a really handy book in in that sense of of you you get the philosophy but you also get some just you know you need some more details on how to do this here's here's some websites here's some books Right, now let's
0: go ahead and um, move into a little bit more detailed, a little bit more of a detailed uh, area where, again, this would be more of a spoiler zone for novels. There's not a whole lot to spoil in this book, uh, but uh, uh, just a few more more in detail, in-depth observations that, that we had here. Uh, Eric, I think you had the first one in terms of a mindset change.
1: Yeah. and And that comes in regards to money. And, and he gives a, an example of a, a movie about wall street at the beginning. And, and one of the main characters has just made millions in his life. And he says, uh, I can't wait till I retire and, and get a motorcycle and just travel around China. And Rolf Potts says, this is the stupidest thing you could ever say because uh, you could live on a janitor salary for probably just half the year, take that salary, go over to China and rent a motorcycle and tour, tour China. You, you don't need to be a, a, a retired multimillionaire and the other problem with that mindset is is that uh if if that's the way that you live like just uh, i'm going to put off travel or even as we've discussed this is more about an overall mindset if i put off if i put that off till i retire I, I might not be healthy enough to travel i might not be in a a, a good position to travel at that point so it, it it it's about doing it now and so he tries to get rid of that that fear of, of not having enough money to, to travel. And I just thought of, uh, some examples, uh, in, in my travels and one of the, one of the funnest places I've ever stayed was a, a $3 hotel. It was, uh, a trip to Egypt with uh, a good friend of mine from, from high school and we were in Luxor and we stayed in a $3 hotel. I mean, I, and I think we even split that, you know, it, it was $3 and then we split that. So it, it, obviously it was uh expensive to get over there on the flight, but, but once you're in country, uh, you end up spending a lot less money depending on the country, but, but a lot of times you end up spending a lot less money than you would if you were just at home. And that can be in terms of meeting people and staying with them. Um, but d- the, the main idea of not letting money be the reason that you don't, don't travel.
0: Yeah. And I think that, that again, the book does a, uh, A great job of explaining how that works and using anecdotes to explain listen if you just go with a little bit of a different mindset on the road again don't travel like a a typical upper class american if you don't if you don't think that you need to go and and uh, and spend all your time in just tourist zones that are designed to, to leech money from wealthy travelers, where you're going to go to all-inclusive resorts that are, that are you know really uh, expensive and designed to, uh, to take money from people who've saved all their money for that particular trip. If you're willing to take another, another avenue, then it's actually a lot cheaper.
1: It's cheaper yeah. than living in the States. This reminds me of, of, of one of Ferris's podcast interviews Cal Fussman talks about spending three years in Europe and he stayed there for free. And the way way he would do it is he would get on a train and he would scope out the ladies. But these were not young ladies. These were old ladies. He was scoping out the old ladies so that he could sit next (laughs) to them and ask them about their family goulash recipes. Because if you asked about goulash, they would talk for hours. And then if they're talking about their goulash, they obviously wanted you to try it. And if you're going to try it, well, then you probably should just stay there. And now you have a place to stay for the next week. And that person has friends in other places that you want to go. So he ended up spending three years in Europe and he stayed for free just by asking old ladies about their family goulash recipes.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's one other approach. Uh, I'm not exactly sure that I that's 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 how I would travel but um, but it definitely has worked for at least one person and it, it resulted in some terrific stories as Fussman uh, Fussman is is a great example of um, I think the other thing so to piggyback on on where you're going in terms of that mindset change with regards to money, there are two directions uh, that, that i would I, I wanted to go uh, with respect to that one uh has to do with the idea of of debt uh basically this he he's I think he's got a healthy view of how toxic debt is. Uh, and and I think that, that that's hard to hard to overstate. Uh, he, there's, there's a quote in the keep it simple chapter where he says, if you're already in debt, work your way out of it and stay out. If you have a mortgage or other long-term debt devise a situation such as property rental that allows you to be independent of its obligations for long periods of time, being free from debts burdens simply gives you more vagabonding options. And I, I'm, I'm going to, expand that more being free from debt's burdens simply gives you more options period and i think basically we've got we we have a consumer culture in the united states and in the western world in general that has embraced this idea that debt is not just bad but it's just a part of life it's something that you know you should you should kind of embrace like oh don't worry you know just just, uh, just go into debt for whatever, you know, don't put off, you know, don't put off whatever you want in the present, you, you, you know, buy things, buy things on credit.
1: Well, and even, even the fact that there's a term called good debt. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's another one. Good debt, right, yeah. Um, the problem is that this, ultimately, it's fine for those, uh, for those who have, gr- have a ton of money. For those who are the creditors, it works great. It works especially well for uh, for people for whom debt is just something that you hold alongside assets. But for most of the population, it basically keeps them enslaved to jobs they don't like, to uh, a way of life that that doesn't allow encounter with the real stuff that that Potts is really talking about in this and and you know getting outside of uh, of the. Uh, working to work thing, and th- and this gets back. There's another quote here here where you know this is from the first chapter. He says the first step of vagabonding is simply a matter of making work serve your interests instead of the other way around. Believe it or not, this is a radical departure from how most people view work and leisure, and I, that that is a really radical statement. And and I think it's it's so obviously true that we we you know it, it's worth considering and reconsidering over and over again but again when when once once debt once you have debt and you're you're working to pay debt you're no longer working for your purpose you're working for someone else mm-hmm. you know and this is where why i get really upset about you know lots of these uh religious leaders and so on who you know tell oh you know call the number you know sow your seed give to this or that you know religious leader or whatever and uh god is going to bless you god is going to give you uh, give you your heart's desire or whatever. And they get people who end up giving on credit. Well, you know who gets blessed by that is Bank of America. It's it's by these you know large uh, financial firms that are giving out that credit. But I think Potts is right, just in general. If you're in debt, work your way out of it. Because as soon as you don't have debt, the flexibility to do things that you actually think are valuable, that you actually prioritize that you believe philosophically are more important than other things, your flexibility to do that stuff is immeasurably multiplied. But if you can't get away from work because, well, you know, I've got bills to pay, I've got, I've got, you know, years worth of debt to to pay back. Well, now, not only can you not say go on some random vagabonding trip, but your priorities, your ability to do the things that you actually want to do, on a daily basis to serve the people that you actually want to serve, to do things that are going to make a dent in the universe to, to, you know, quote a Steve jobs saying that stuff is diminished because you're having to actually work for the debt payments to, to dig yourself out. And now you're working for the work itself. And to me, that's, that's one of the other really big lessons uh, from this book. And it's about just learning how to prioritize and say, you know, you know, Working a job, working this job, isn't really the most important thing in my life. Actually, the most important things in my life, you know, lots of people say, you know, oh, family's the most important, or you get, you know, uh, faith, family, football, right? Lots of people. <laughs> you get these sorts of things. Well, is it re- are those really the most important things in your life? Well, then why is it that work and your job actually takes the vast majority of that time. Well, oh, it's to provide for those things. Well, when are you actually going to be able to get to those things then? Yeah. When you,
1: when you retire.
0: Yeah. When you retire yeah, and then you're, then your kids are gone, right? By the time you actually get the time to do it, your kids that, you know, the family that was your priority has grown up. Your wife has divorced you because you weren't spending time with her or whatever. Uh, or your, you've, you know, your husband has divorced you because you weren't spending time with him. And, everything gets backwards and, and that, that's the thing I think really is, is a good lesson. This is where this book is, is worthwhile to me. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, and it ties in with some of the other books, uh, for the books of Titans project as well. Book 44 is, is called debt. So, uh, (laughs) get a whole 500 pages of, of, uh, the history of debt. So that should, uh, that should be a fun conversation. Plenty of time And then book 18 is, is, uh, Thoreau by, uh, or Walden by Thoreau, which, uh, which Rolf pulls a lot from in this book. So I think you know Tim Ferris says uh Vagabonding was his his muse for uh the four-hour work week. I think uh, I think Walden was um Rolf Potts's muse for uh for this book Vagabonding.
0: Yeah, I I agree with that. And and, and actually as I was reading through this book, I kept saying uh, saying to myself, honestly, I think given how much he's pulling from Thoreau, I wonder how uh, you know I I have to I have half a mind to say you know Instead of reading Potts, just read Thoreau. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, because so much of what Potts is pulling from is just a modernization of, of what Thoreau is saying in Walden, and it's like, well, you know, that quote comes from Thoreau. And like, oh, all the best quotes, all the things I want to highlight, all the things that I'm, I'm you know, saving, saving for my show notes. Oh yeah, that one's from Thoreau too.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, one, one other thing I, I, I really liked is that he said to take inspiration from anywhere... Uh, on where to go. And, uh, I think back to, to some of my inspiration, it came from the movie Braveheart. <laughs> uh, I just saw that movie and I wanted to go to Scotland and that, uh, that led to me studying abroad in the UK for one summer. I wanted to go to Scotland, but they didn't have any programs. So I went to Oxford and, and that was also from inspiration from, from reading a lot of C.S. Lewis at that time. So I, I liked that idea of, of, of taking inspiration and, and, What's funny is when I was at Oxford, the the history professor there, I told him my uh, my love of, of Braveheart, and he was he was horrified, because uh, the movie is so so historically inaccurate, and um, <laughs> so even even though it was it was uh, not the not the best historically uh, accurate movie, it uh, it led it led me to uh, to to desire to go there.
0: Yeah, uh actually one one thing to remember even just thinking about the title of the movie is who actually was called Braveheart and it wasn't William Wallace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you are aware of who who that was,
1: correct? Was it uh the um gosh, I can't think of his name right now, the the other Scottish king?
0: It was no, it was, it was uh actually uh Robert the Bruce. Okay. Yeah. Robert the Bruce was actually uh, was actually the one
1: called Braveheart. OK. And then uh, Wallace, the author of the book, Braveheart, must have turned that into it being about William Wallace then.
0: Yeah, that's that's as
1: I understand it. Randall Wallace. Um, one other like, uh, pra- practical advice thing I thought was good from the book was he said to buy a small bag. And, and at the beginning, I said he tra- uh, Rolf Potts, the author, traveled <laughs> for quite a while without any luggage at all. Uh, and, and when we get to the the Genghis Khan book, we we see the Mongols taking a similar approach in their their warfare, where they they did not have a caravan of uh, food and and supplies behind them, but they each each man was responsible for himself. Um, but that idea of travel, and, and I like that idea, and I've I've done that myself, where I all purposely buy a small bag, uh, and and it has to fit in there to, to go. And if that, that means figuring things out when you, uh, when you get there fine, but, um, that makes you a lot more mobile as well. And just one of those smart practical ideas in, in, in traveling.
0: Yeah, that's something, honestly, I really still need a lot of work on. Uh, it's, you know, he, he makes the comment, unfortunately, life at home can't prepare you for how little you need on the road. And every trip I take, I find that that ultimately winds up true. And, you know, I try to to travel with the small bag and take a carry on only or you know whatever is necessary for the trip. And and still, it, it seems invariably I get home and I'll have used maybe half of what I took, you know, maybe war uh, half to three quarters of what I took and, you know, it just comes with experience, I suppose to say, okay, well, I'm not going to need this. I'm not going to need this. The problem is that, you know, I'm a contingent thinker. That's the, you know, that's the way I tend to, I tend to operate. So I'm always thinking like, okay, well, what happens if, you know, I have to go do this, what happens? If, and, you know, so you, you, you want to take uh casual clothes, but then what happens if I, you know, if suddenly I, uh, somebody invites me to go to something a little bit more formal, well, then that means I need formal clothes. Well, then, do I take an entirely different, you know, set of clothes for uh, for a, a, a situation that may not happen? Well, I certainly don't want to have to buy expensive formal clothes on the road. So then, what do you do? You take that extra extra bit of luggage, luggage. or you know, one of the bigger issues is for somebody like me who likes to uh, to work out on the road is footwear, right? So you know, you may need footwear that's more acceptable for some social situations, but then you need you know the footwear that you're gonna uh, going to work out in, and then you may need a set of sandals or whatever. And then before too long, you got, you know, four sets of shoes. Uh, it's really, really easy to overpack. Uh, one thing I will say that's made it a lot easier has been, uh, the invention of the smartphone. Uh, thankfully now I can, uh, a lot of the things that I would have taken before, uh, whether that be books or, uh, all sorts of things I can have on my, on my smartphone and, and, uh, you know, voice recorders, uh, uh journaling stuff, any any of that sort of stuff. All that stuff folds into my into my uh into my smartphone now, which I'm I'm able to travel with and uh and that has definitely helped lighten the load, but it's still something that I, I need a lot of work on and i I continue to try try to work on every time I take a trip.
1: Yeah. And the the thing that helped me the most was uh was getting robbed at gunpoint. That that uh cured me of my <laughs> desire to take extra luggage because my luggage was was forcibly taken from me. So that happened in 2002 in in Costa Rica, and it, it honestly changed how I I traveled from that point forward, um, and in to the point where for the for the main for my main bag, I I for a while was getting it so that I was sure that I could run with that bag on. So uh, the thing that had my computer in it and my, my main things that I would need on the trip. It was a backpack that was very small. It was tight to me. And I, it even went to what the shoes I would buy. I I could run in those shoes. In fact, I was at work one day and my wife was in a, a small car accident, about a mile away. And I, I ran from my office to, to that, uh, accident in those shoes. And, and I know it sounds really <laughs> dumb and, and uh, over the top, but, um, I, I, it was actually part of my thinking process just in, in packing, and, and it was a result of that, that experience of, of getting robbed at gunpoint. And luckily, you know, nothing horrible happened with that. Um, I mean, sometimes that, that can lead to kidnappings, or, or you know, I, I didn't lose money, or I didn't lose my passport or anything. It was just uh, actually a bag full of uh, a lot of touristy gifts. So I was fortunate, but it, it did change how I, I thought about uh, packing.
0: Yeah, it's not often that you hear somebody say, you know, what really helped me the most with that is being robbed at gunpoint. <laughs> that's, a, that's a terrific quote. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it does, again, uh, bring, in, bring into, into mind a few other things that he talks about that really, um, when you travel— yeah, there's the danger of those sorts of things, but there's the danger of those sorts of things in in all sorts of places, and in, in various cities, and you know wherever you go, you could get potentially robbed at gunpoint. You know, in the United States as well, wherever you live, uh, and you're much more likely to get robbed at gunpoint if you're carrying a large bag of stuff that may seem valuable to someone going by. But if you just if you're just some somebody who's traveling light, you're much more likely to to attract that attention. That's something else that Potts talks about uh, in this book. Is you know again learning to keep a low profile for lots of reasons. Yeah, and I think again that's that's valuable in life, right? And this gets back to the you know the, the old proverb of uh, the rich man's wealth may save may ransom his life, but the poor man hears no threat, right? That's the uh, the, the idea that. Well, you know, having lots of stuff is great except that that stuff can make you a target. So, at what point is at what point and this is the pack light pack light question for the road also comes back to, you know, this and this is where Thoreau comes comes to comes to pack light for the for the journey of life, right? I mean, yeah. how much and stuff goes, do we
1: really need? When it goes back to your your comments about debt, uh, you know, and every, every single one of those accoutrements uh, or or things that you you constantly add to the house that that's a direct trade uh, for most for most most people. If you're if you're if you're working on an hourly basis or a salary, that's an exact trade for your time. So all the all the things that you add into your house, whether it's small things or, or cars or or boats or whatever, that that's a trade of of your time, uh, and it it could be a trade on your future time if you're taking out debt to do that. So yeah, even just even keeping a low profile in, in that sense. Uh, you're able to spend more of your time on what you truly want to be doing instead of um, instead of paying for all the, all these additional things that you have.
0: Yeah, getting convinced that you need all this stuff in order to be in order to be happy in life is really what you know is, is really what needs to be fought against here. And a, a big part of that is learning to again go back to your actual priorities. and And I think this is a good practice of you know quarterly just go back to, to your to what you would, to write out your own sort of life statement, your mission statement or whatever, your major priorities and then ask yourself is what I'm doing right now? How is what I'm doing in line with those priorities and how is what I'm doing if if someone were to look at what I'm doing now, what would they say my priorities are? And that's actually yeah. that's a really good drill. It's a good exercise to think about and to go back to and say <laughs> You know, am I living according to what my stated priorities are? And if not, what are the priorities that I'm living according to? And that that may require emptying the garage and emptying the house a little bit and downsizing the house or doing whatever to get back to where you can actually do the stuff that you you value.
1: And that is the exact premise of book 16, Start With Why. So that will be (laughs) uh, another awesome uh, uh, conversation about that one.
0: Yeah, so let's go ahead and transition to the last couple things here. Uh I actually did have a couple objections or a couple of objections and also appreciations uh from the Don't Set Limits chapter. Uh and you know, you you also had some notes on that as well. Um one is there, 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 was a, uh, there was a quote that stuck out to me for, for a couple reasons where he says, uh, socially, you'll find it easier to be gregarious and open-minded. This is while you're vagabonding. Mentally, you'll feel engaged and optimistic, newly ready to listen and learn. And as much as anything, you'll find yourself abuzz with the peculiar feeling that you can choose to go in any direction, literally and figuratively, at any given moment. And as I read that, to be totally honest, I... I um, I didn't find all of that as appealing as as what Potts seems to suspect that his reader will uh, find appealing. This idea of you'll find it easier to be gregarious. That seems to me I, in the note that I have. It seem it, it, that I put in the book it, it says uh, this makes it seem as though vagabonding should be more appealing to extroverts than introverts. And I think it, there there are a few cases, there are a few places where Potts's particular or particularities, his his own. Uh, world view his own sort of uh, again particularities ways that that, that things that he 's come to in the way that he's he's uh traveled the world uh come through that won 't really won 't really uh jive with with everyone else's uh desires or or even ethical views uh in terms of what would be uh what would be advantageous or uh, or useful, or uh, or a positive about going on the road. I mean, th- there's another place here where he says you will have impassioned one-week love affairs with natives and fellow travelers alike along the Adriatic coast of Croatia, the cobbled streets of Havana, or the neon s- aven- the neon avenues of Tokyo. And I'm sitting there reading this, going, um, "No, <laughs> no, I won't." <laughs> and you know, there there are a number of these places where my my I suspect that that sort of Uh, Comment about the expectations to have on the road will certainly turn off some readers of this book, and and there's a number of places where that kind of assumption of, hey, you know, you can just travel and you know, uh, you know, these impassioned one-week love affairs—that's that's that's one of the best things about travel. Well, you know, for a lot of people, that's not the sort of thing that is a positive. Um, Yeah. And 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 that that. I think in some cases detracts from the book. Although, again, many, many people, many of our listeners will probably look at that and say, yeah, having those impassioned one week love affairs are the sort of things that I would potentially look forward to on the road, and, you know, to have that story to tell. And, and you know, for you, that 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 may not uh, be something that uh, that you would find uh, as a negative in this book. But for lots of people, I suspect that that would be uh, a bit off putting. Mm hmm. But I think that ties also then to you, you, I, looking at the at the show notes here. You've also got something about cultural identity as well.
1: Yeah, and, and um, this wasn't necessarily a negative for me, but it was more of a, just an insight that I thought was was uh, I, I probably, probably had never deeply thought about it before reading this book. But he says that cultural ident- cultural identity is instinctive; it's not intellectual, and and that, that's obvious. I mean, if you, if you the the things that make up our culture we we never sit down and think about them oh i do this because i was born in this state in this country uh this is how i act in this situation because of my family culture or this is how i do this. uh you know you, you don't really think of those things until you're forced to but that's one of the the beauties of travel is is that it it opens up to that it, uh you see somebody doing it a different way uh you see a cultural practice in a different country and it, and it just goes back to allowing you to see your culture from the outside. And as we've discussed, that can happen in the States as well. I mean, if you're from the States, they, that it's more of the mindset, but I, I think travel just, just brings that out even more. And, uh, it, it also just makes me, me think, um, I had something earlier where there was a quote that, in, that, that, people who don't travel, they've only read one page of a book, uh, as opposed to the full book. And I I think in the 10 years ago, I would have, I would have believed that as well. But, um, you know, one, one person that comes to mind, that's a a complete outside of that is is your mom. And, and especially how she raised you and, and my wife, your, your Your sister, but, uh, (laughs) she She has not traveled overseas, but she has an international mindset. She trained she taught you guys how to think that way. And so you, it, it's not necessary to, to to have traveled all these different places to be able to see your culture for what it really is. Um, it It may help, but I, there's people out there that that have not traveled and, and have just as as good, if not better uh, cultural awareness or um, ability to see. Uh, what they believe as, as part of a cultural context and, and uh, that instinctive cultural context and not just a, a intellectual cultural context.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think it's important. I think your, your observation there is right on. I think it's it's so he says, you know, cultural identity is instinctive, not intellectual. But it doesn't have to be. And I think that's what you're getting at here. And I think that's that's something to take away uh, is for most people cultural identity is instinctive. I think part of what it become, or part of what it, what it is to become a well-educated and situated uh, person, and a, and a, uh, a faithful uh, intellectual person, is to begin to see one's own culture from the outside, and to actually reevaluate things intellectually that have been received Instinctively, to that point, and and that that does take time, and and yes, to some degree, the instinctive aspect of it all can't be avoided, but we can get much better at seeing our culture from the our own culture from the outside and evaluating and comparing and determining whether or not things should change, and 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 deciding, you know what, I was raised to think X, but now that I've had a chance to. See this from another perspective. I actually think why now, now at that point, your cultural identity is not necessarily as instinctive, or your uh, your your cultural uh, say commitments are not necessarily instinctive, but they are intellectual. And then on the basis of that intellectual commitment, you can begin to make them instinctive again. And that's the that's the real uh, task there for uh, for someone who is a well rounded uh, uh, human being. And in, in, at least in my view, that's how, that's how I understand that that's part of my aim when I'm, when I'm in say the college classroom is to, is to force my students to have to do precisely that. Uh, and actually there's a really good example that he, he brings out in this book, uh, where he, he has this quote, he, where he's, you know, telling his reader, uh, who is more likely to, to come from specific uh, angles than others, uh, he says, never presume that you have more to teach local women than they have to teach you. Feminist theory, after all, is largely useless in conservative cultures. So the best way to achieve solidarity with a local woman is to listen to her and to try to understand her worldview and way of life. Imagine. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, and that's why that's why I chuckled when I when I talked about my Mexico trip and it being a, a mission trip, because um, you're kind of pumped up to believe, you know, we're going to go down there and we're going to help these people and it's going to be awesome. And we're, you know, we're, we're going to be doing so much, so much, uh, good for these people. And, and I guess one of the shocks of the trip was that colonialism, anything good for them. Uh, I, I, but what I got in return and what I learned from them was so much more than I know that we gave to, to people in Mexico. Um, so I, 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 like that never presume that you have more to teach, Uh, in fact, if you, if you travel, you're going to be and especially if you travel for a reason, like I'm going to, I'm going to do good for these people. Uh, it's, it's like the Reagan quote of, of run away from, uh, from anyone in the government that says, I'm here to help you. Uh, (laughs) I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, that that brought that to mind for me.
0: Yeah, and, and again, I think uh, he, he, uh, these are some useful correctives here, and it's a good aspect of travel and vagabonding. That, that's an important thing. And again, we, you can apply these principles in everyday life, provided that you, and, and again, provided that we, we can all provide, we can all do this as a part of our everyday life, provided that we get out of our autopilot bubble and actually encounter and engage with reality. And that that's a it, it, suddenly we're we're in in that useful corrective. And you know again, I as someone who's spent you know a good number of years now in the uh, ivory basement, I haven't made it to the tower yet, but uh, uh, I've spent a lot of time in that ivory basement. Um, one of those things that you, you know I often see is that you see all these theorists, and and he mentions you know feminist theory is largely useless in conservative cultures. You see all these theorists that have all sorts of great theoretical perspectives and all sorts of things that are really interesting. And then, when you actually get out there in the real world, and you actually encounter reality, you realize, yeah, that theory, um, <laughs> it, the person who is working on that theory, uh, hasn't been outside in a while, <laughs> hasn't actually engaged with a real person in a while, hasn't actually seen the real results here, and something went haywire with that theory. And that's always a good test, you know. There's mm-hmm. a lot of there's a lot of theoretical stuff that, yes, it it matters. But some of it isn't all that good precisely because it's not actually put to practice it, it's not something that does work it's not something that can work in other contexts and and that's something that even uh, you know professional academics who are supposed to be thinking outside of their own contexts it's very easy for our own contexts our own uh, intellectual pursuits to become culturally bound so that now all of a sudden everything is once again uh, just reifying what was done before. And now there's no real intellectual work being done. Uh, it's just a, uh, it's, it's just building theory upon theory that doesn't have good application to the real world. And, and he, um, and, and again, another quote that he has here, interestingly, one of the initial impediments to open-mindedness is not ignorance, but ideology. This is especially true in America where particularly in progressive circles, we have politicized open-mindedness to the uh, to the point where it isn't so open-minded anymore. Cling too fiercely to your ideologies, and you'll miss the subtle realities that politics can't address. And that is a great quote in terms of the way that this all works, and in, in, ter- in terms of the way that things actually, uh, actually work out in practice. Uh, and and to that, actually, there's one other piece that kind of plugs in with that. And that is uh, his uh, his reminder that uh, that, you know, you can't just trust all of the handbooks. Right. He says, well, be careful. Uh, You know, he says guidebooks are important. You mentioned that this book is a is a uh, is a tool guide. He says, you also have to be careful of the, tool, of, of the guidebooks. He says, because a guidebook, and here's the quote, can thus jade your impressions. It's important to use it as a handy reference during your adventures, not as an all-encompassing holy book. And just in, you know, for the, at the risk of extending my rant a little further, my note on that was, this is a worthwhile lesson about scholarship, research, and opinion formation in general. What happens is people get you know the guidebook, they get what somebody said before, and then that begin, that shapes all opinion of everything that was said after. And instead of actually encountering the reality of something, instead of going back and getting your hands dirty and, and and taking a look at it for yourself, you just trust that whoever took the field notes on it or whoever did the guidebook got it right the first time, and then nobody actually get, gets off that path again, and then scholarship goes down the tubes. And I, I see this all the time in my field. I've seen it in uh, in quite a few other fields, uh, this is something that a lot of uh, a lot of quality scholars talk a lot about. It's how you get this herd mentality uh, in scholarship and in culture, because a lot of times culture comes downwind from uh, some, you know, long dead scholar where the where where the his ideas or theories have or usually his ideas or theories have uh, worked their way into the popular consciousness.
1: Yeah, and it, it, it ties into the idea uh, Rolf Potts, he talks about going it slow when you're traveling. And I think if you're going fast, so if he, if he talks about people doing 40 countries in a row, <laughs> uh, com- compared to the person doing one country. And if, if you, if you go fast, you're, you're only going to do the guidebook stuff. That's, that's all you're going to have time for. Uh, but if you do it slow, you, you, you actually will probably create your own guidebook in, in a way because you'll be doing things that no one else has likely done because you'll be meeting people that, uh, that the guidebooks have probably not met, and uh, and so you you'll have a, a different experience in a, in a deeper one. Um, and and I've I've been a part of both types of travel. One the one where you you bus from one place to another quickly, and uh, the the other one where I've lived in different places for for a period of time. And and I, I just uh, the the longer I go, uh, it, it's I'd, I'd sometimes just rather sit. For uh, three hours at a coffee shop and just kind of watch life go by where, where I am as opposed to trying to hit three museums in that that three hour time period, um, so that 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 idea of uh, of not going by a guidebook but but just uh, really taking it in, taking the time to to do that it's it's going to be more challenging, but uh, it should be cheaper and um, kind of the comment you made before too where. Uh, A lot of Americans will just go and travel, but stay at the Four Seasons or stay at the nice places. And and it becomes this huge, expensive trip uh, when it when it really doesn't have to be.
0: Yeah. And Chesterton, you know, talked a a good bit about this. This is actually in in his book, Heretics, um, where where he spent some of uh, some time talking about that, uh, where he says uh, that, you know, even those traveling uh, often don't really don't really gain in the kind of knowledge that should come from travel. I'll I'll read a little section from that. I just found it. Um, He says, uh, the secrets about which anthropologists concern themselves can be best learnt not from books or voyages, but from the ordinary commerce of man with man or human with human. Remember, he's writing in the early 20th century here. The secret of why some savage tribe worships monkeys or the moon is not to be found even by traveling among those savages and taking down their answers in a notebook, although the cleverest man may pursue this course. The answer to the riddle is in England. It is in London. Nay, it is in his own heart. When a man has discovered why men in Bond Street wear black hats, he will at the same moment have discovered why men in Timbuktu wear red feathers. The mystery in the heart of some savage war dance should not be studied in books of scientific travel. It should be studied at a subscription ball. If a man desires to find out the origins of religions, let him not go to the sandwich islands, let him go to church. If a man wishes to know the origin of human society, to know what society philosophically speaking really is, let him not go into the British Museum. Let him go into society. And I think he really gets it there. He says and and this is also another another principle that that he talks about in terms of the man who has loved uh who loves many women has loved none, but the man who has loved one well has loved them all. Uh that's a I'm I'm Probably pretty close to par- pretty close to a quote, but it's a it's a paraphrase there. It's this principle that that uh, again, encountering the re- encountering reality and doing it mindfully teaches a lot more than you know going through tons of experiences, but doing so without really getting to the bottom of what's going on. And and that's where I think one of the conflicts, one of the f- central conflicts of what Potts is, is doing in vagabonding comes in, is in that conflict between presenting vagabonding as the tool par excellence for how to get to this sort of state of enlightenment where now you are living according to your uh, to your principles and according to your priorities and so on. And... Living according to your principles and priorities, which is really what 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 Potts I think acknowledges needs to be the the, the priority the the, the, the the thing that that is the actual end in mind and in in some cases and I think he does acknowledge this in a couple cases a couple places in this book in in some ca- some cases for people for whom travel is not. One of their priorities, and, you know, a lot of people, you know, they have as, you know, their bucket list, there's all sorts of stuff on their bucket list that involves seeing the world and travel and all that, but there are lots of people for whom that's just not as much of a priority, and for those people, the idea of vagabonding to meet your, you know, to to fulfill your life's priorities doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and again, the point there is going back to Chesterton, learning how to encounter reality to encounter the sharp tang the the shock of something that's different from expectations of actually talking to someone and realizing oh my gosh this person who i thought was you know a politically evil and really just believed in x y or z awful thing actually has you know people's good in mind and they he's just going about it from a different philosophical perspective, but I can kind of understand how this person's thinking that actually is, is valuable. That's a really valuable thing. And again, it's, it's not the travel so much per se as the, as the mindset there. Although again, I do agree that travel is a terrific tool and you've talked about this. You've traveled a lot more than I have, uh, uh, at least, uh, you know, physically speaking, uh, you've traveled a lot more than I have. Um, uh, and, you know, you've got uh, some good examples of how that has has brought up uh, some of those those lessons in the process. So, again, keep coming back to that same point.
1: So probably worth uh, worth moving on just a little bit there. Uh, yeah. And, and, uh, just interject very quickly. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to go back through old Tim Ferriss podcasts as well, just to especially of, of people who have recommended books that we're reading. And uh, so on my run uh, this past week, I listened to the interview with Glenn Beck. And Tim starts out the podcast. He's like, this is not a political podcast. <laughs> this is, uh, you know, don't, don't turn it off just because i remember that one. Uh, I've got Glenn that on here. And it was actually one of my, if, if I was to rank him top five, uh, Tim Ferris, it's up there. Episodes, it's a good, it's a good episode. It, it would be one of the top five. And it, and it, and it hits on that stuff directly. Like, you know, everyone thinks Glenn Beck is this, but he, he, uh, he even talks about uh converse, Glenn Beck's talking about conversations he's had with, with friends of his that are far left and, uh, and how they didn't even want to speak to him and, and be on his show because of them, they would lose all their, their friends and that kind of thing. But it, it was a just the way they, they talked about it was actually very, very good and very surprising. I, I was not expecting that at all, uh, from that, from that podcast episode. So, um, yeah, it's a good that, that would example. be a good one to, to reference.
0: Yeah. It's a good example. We can put it in the show notes. Uh, uh, Actually, you know, bringing that up uh, also brings up a couple things, you know, a couple minor critiques that I should get into here in terms of um, uh, places where Potts kind of steps in areas where I'm uh, uh, a bit more familiar and, and doesn't exactly get a, get some things right. Uh, he mentions in one case uh, that uh, vagabonding is sort of a return to the idea of pilgrimage, and he says, um, quote, What we know as personal travel, after all, is the historical legacy, not of exploration or commerce, but of pilgrimage, the non-political, non-material quest for private discovery and growth. And my immediate response to that was, uh, Potts doesn't really have any understanding of pilgrimage and how pilgrimage has functioned uh, historically. This idea of pilgrimage as non-political, non-material is... uh, just not not reality uh you know historically pilgrimage has been a very political thing uh especially since sacred spaces and the areas to which or through which people travel on pilgrimage are uh are politically dominated spaces and uh authority over those sites and and so on is 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 still uh quite a big deal i mean just look at jerusalem or mecca today and 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 the political the political uh uh aspects of of who controls those sites and all that that's a really big deal and pilgrimage has historically been about power as much as anything else i mean when you mandate as a part of religious observance for example that 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 people go upon a pilgrimage well huh, that is that is about power that is about uh that is about political power uh even going back to the crusades and so on the the earliest crusades were uh, in many respects, uh, marketed as s- something of a, of a militarized pilgrimage. And, and again, that's not non-political, non-material, uh, in any, in any way. Uh, and again, we could, I could derail this, uh, quite a bit by talking about the Crusades, but I won't, I won't do that. But, um, that said, I, I should mention that that doesn't diminish the value of holiness uh, which a lot of people in the English-speaking world don't really quite get what this word actually means, uh, you know, in its sort of original or religious context, uh, doesn't mean, you know, a lot of, you know, especially in modern Christian parlance, you get a lot of holiness is about, you know, living uh, righteously or something like that. You know, it's not, it's not really that uh, holiness. The concept of holiness is about keeping separate spaces or or, or having something that's other. Uh, reserving things as special. So what's holy is that which is set apart from the everyday, the day-to-day. Uh, you know, you've got a sacred space, a holy space. Sacred is a synonym from, from Latin. Uh, and, you know, basically you have this idea that there's a sacred space, a special space, and that can be temporally, that can be materially, that can be in a number of different axes, that something is is designated as special or, or separate from the everyday or common uh, world of life. And, you know, that there is value in that, in life. Regardless of whether that ends up being connected to, uh, you know, often, get, often getting connected to uh, power and, and politics and all of these other things. Uh, that keeping something uh, separate and sacred is... Is actually grounding for humanity. It's it's something that helps us uh, culturally and 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 socially. It helps. We we have a hard time when 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 life doesn't have signposts. When life doesn't have quote unquote holidays, holy days, separate days that are special on which you don't do everyday stuff. Even down to weekends, we work a lot better with those sorts of things. And and again, that's where finding ways to to work. The holy, to work the other, to work something that's outside the norm into life is an important thing. Now, again, holiness is easily co opted by political power and ambition, just like what we see in pilgrimage historically. Holiness is co opted by political power and ambition more often than not, you could say. This is a danger even for vagabonders, for whom vagabonding becomes the everyday, day to day rather than being sort of a holy space in which you can encounter something other it becomes something else it becomes the common day-to-day at which point it loses its it loses its uh its its efficacy as the tool for the more valuable things in life so i think it's important to make that distinction that he doesn't really you know potts doesn't quite understand how pilgrimage works nor does he quite get this concept of holiness which is worth worth noting there and and as an aside you get a lot of people that really don't understand the holiness codes and things like that in in ancient religions with things like you know uh, you get a lot of theorists who uh who talk about how anti-women you know the jewish law was or these sorts of things because a woman who was menstruating for example would be unclean from a from a holy from a holiness perspective you know she was not permitted to to go near the sacred but neither was a man who'd had a seminal uh, emission right uh, neither was anyone who had touched a dead body or whatever. It's the day-to-day encounters with, mor- with mortality, with the markers of mortality that, uh, you know, that's death, reproduction, bodily fluids, things like that. Those make a person unclean for going to the holy, the separate space, precisely because that holy separate space is designated for the stuff that's not of the day-to-day mortal kind of existence, And this is where, again, vagabonding or finding ways to to break up life, to to remind yourself of priorities and to to reorient oneself once again. That that's a good practice. And even if Potts doesn't understand pilgrimage again, this comes back to to something uh, to something worthwhile.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think the talk with uh, bodily fluids. We uh, we may have just lost our G rating.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, everybody has bodily fluids, even the uh, even the, <laughs> the under seven children. Uh, so you know, so long as we uh, we, we we handle things that way, uh, you know, talking about them. Perhaps we should have. I, perhaps I should have called it PP and and stuff like that for the for our younger <laughs> listeners. But. Um, But yeah, and and one other place, you know, Potts also doesn't really understand what Jesus was after either, because, you know, again, he has the, quote, Jesus after all taught that it is pointless to look to otherworldly realms for revelation because, quote, the kingdom of God is within you, end quote. Uh, Time will not permit me to explain the number of ways in which Potts doesn't quite understand what's going on either in that quote or in terms of Jesus himself, uh, because Jesus does absolutely uh, teach uh, to look to otherworldly realms for revelation uh, and, and actually uh, mandates that people live in light of other worldly revelation and and live in this world and in, in, in light of, uh, of things that are more important from uh, sort of this heavenly realm as, as he sees it. So that's not exactly right either, but again, uh,
1: Sort of tangential to the book,
0: and and with that, we should probably start wrapping up this uh, this podcast. Coming back to the big picture,
1: yeah, and and to to conclude, I it, it was it was neat having this discussion because there was a lot to pull out from this book. Uh, and and even with that, this was of of the books that we've uh, read so far. This was my least favorite book of the list. <laughs> I, I just think it was one of those books that for for Tim Ferriss, uh, it was the right book at the right time, and. And it's also one of those things. I, you know, Braveheart's one of my favorite movies, but the first time I saw it, I, I didn't like it. I, and I know that's blasphemous, but um, it, that, but that I think is the, kind of blasphemous. The hype, <laughs> the hype had been so strong for that movie, and everyone, you got to see, you got to see it. That when I finally did see it, I, I uh, it, it didn't live up to the, to the hype. And and um, uh, the this book was similar for me in that, I, you know, every every podcast of Tim's you listen to, he's he's hyping this book and. And I just thought it was going to be something uh, otherworldly and just amazing. And and I think part of the reason I didn't didn't particularly care for the book was uh, was that hype. But then also, it's it just wasn't the right book at the right time for me, which it it definitely was for for Tim Ferriss.
0: Well, and I think a lot of it is again, you've traveled quite a bit already, so this is not you know a lot. And and, and in some of these ways, uh, so this is not as revelatory. Though this worldly revelatory, I should say, um, it's not was not as revelatory for you as it might be to a lot of a lot of uh, our listeners or to a lot of uh, the people that you know that Tim uh, Ferris also uh, uh, is th- that are part of his his larger uh, audience. So, you know, I I liked the book more certainly than you did. Although this is not one of my favorite books, say uh, that we've looked at so far. I do think that this is especially for those who've not traveled much. Uh, is a worthwhile tool book to have. Uh, mm-hmm. and for those who are sort of interested in rethinking, um, priorities and things like that, it could be worth the read. Although you know, I might recommend something like the four hour work week before I'd recommend, before I'd recommend this one, honestly, because yeah, it, it it, 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 it takes a lot of the same principles about reprioritizing and all that and, and does it in, in ways that are, uh, perhaps a little bit more productive and less oriented towards just one thing with travel and, 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 you know, puts this whole idea of you can try to restructure your life to, to more closely align with your priorities, which is I think something that, that the four hour work week gets at, or as you mentioned, Walden is is something mm-hmm. else that uh, I might recommend ahead of it, but I do think it's worth the read at least. And, and you know, even if there are places where you're going to, where you're not going to like it all that much, uh, and so for me that i found it a little bit more more valuable than that uh one less or one last uh um quote from me that uh was that i think is worthwhile uh worth worth bringing in uh is this uh this quote from toward the end of the book integrate the deliberate pace and fresh perspective that made your travel experience so vivid and allow for unstructured or what i would again go back go back going back to the discussion that i just had I would call holy time, you know, other time, separate from the day-to-day. So allow for unstructured time in your day-to-day home schedule. Don't let the vices you conquered on the road, fear, selfishness, vanity, prejudice, envy, creep back into your daily life. That's a good quote, and it's a good place for me to leave off in terms of the message from the book. Uh, And my notes on that were, be uncommonly present. In everyday life, be uncommonly present, be mindful, think differently. Uh, you know, th- that I think is a, is a worthwhile uh, takeaway to get from just about anything. And I think it's a, a good, good place for me to leave off here.
1: Yeah, and I'll, I'll close out with one quote that is found in the book, uh, but it's, it's from T.S. Eliot, where he says, and at the end of all of our exploring, uh, sorry, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And I think that quote hits, hits on a lot of what, what he talks about of, of um, getting out of that uh, that instinctive cultural uh, things that you, you don't even realize. Uh, but, but kind of in line with what you're saying of, of being uncommonly present, being mindful, uh, that's what is going to allow you to know the, a place for the first time, whether that's where you live right now or uh, some place you travel to. It, it's really a shift in the mindset and 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 being present there. So, uh, as a great great quote to uh, to close off with.
0: And that will do it for us today for this episode. Now, before we get out of here, just a reminder: you can follow along with us at booksoftitans.com, and of course, ping us on Twitter or Instagram at Books of Titans. And if you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to this podcast and find all of our past uh, episodes through iTunes, Google Play, the Android Marketplace, your podcast manager of choice. And if you, you don't find us through that, let us know. But uh, we should be
1: available through just about everything. And, of course, if you're enjoying the podcast, please make sure to give us an effusive five-star rating on iTunes. That will really help us. And, and also share your favorite episodes on social media. We'll be back soon to discuss the next book, which will be Stone's Soup by Marcia Brown. On behalf of Jason Staples, I'm Eric Rosthead, and this has been the Books of Titans podcast. Thank you for listening.
0: Keep reading. Keep improving.
1: Keep it real.
0: I made this.